0: I was going to say that everyone go ahead and have a seat. And then I look up and everyone's already seated. So problem solved. Well, God is good. All the time. And all the time? God is good. Yeah. See, Casey doesn't have this problem. When he comes up and says hello, everyone says hello. If he were to come up and say God is good, I bet everyone would say it without even thinking. Casey's just magical, I guess. It's the, uh, the unicorn of announcers. Uh, All right, let's go ahead and open in prayer. Heavenly Father, I am grateful that we can come before you and worship in song to sing of you with our voices. And now I pray that you would have a sing of you with our minds as we dive into your word and worship you in it. God, help us today to have our eyes and hearts in the right place to hear that which you have brought to us for our benefit. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm curious, do you guys, I wonder about weird things throughout the week. Just all week I think about really weird things in comparison to what I think normal people think about. But have you guys ever wondered why we love things like fishing tails so much? You know, the, those great stories of, of, oh man, I was out on the boat and then I, I reeled in this thing and I fought for two hours and, and I brought in this 16 foot monster of a salmon and it was wonderful and I'm going to eat on it for the next six years. Or the, the great stories like me. I remember one time I went fishing and it was at a trout farm. So, you know, cheating, but, uh, but I cast my line in and I hook it on something and I'm reeling it in and I can't, I can't. Can't get it. And finally, the guy that I was with my buddy's dad, his name was Larry. He finally just says, you know, cut the line like you probably snagged it on something. Cast my line out again after putting a new hook on. And again, I start fighting on something. Something catches and I'm fighting on it. And I decided I wasn't going to give up. I wasn't going to cut the line. And I pulled in a log. So, I mean, we, we love these stories. We love these stories of, like, grit and determination where somebody, against all odds, fights against it, and they end up, they end up catching something wonderful, not a log, but, like, a big fish. Or even, like, every movie that we watch has that going-against-the-odds kind of feel. And maybe it's because we like the message of don't give up, You know, we all need to hear it, uh, hear that at times we, but, but we empathize with these characters, even a character in a fishing tale of somebody that pulls in a 10 foot bull shark or, uh, or, you know, uh, a tuna, like have you ever watched those tuna shows where they're catching tuna? I mean, they fight so hard and it's like four hours on the line and they finally get one in, but we like these stories of, of again, grit and determination going against the odds, And finding success at the very end. Well, our story that we're going to be covering today is not about that at all. Uh, It's actually a story of failure. Grit and determination ultimately seems to cause the disciples to fail. Go ahead and open up with me to Matthew chapter 17, and we're going to be doing verses 14 to 20. And Uh, If you have a King James version, you might notice that I'm going to leave out a verse, verse 21. And I'm actually not leaving it out. Uh, It's actually not in uh, the oldest, more reliable manuscripts. Um, It was a scribal addition, not subtraction. So for us, it's subtraction if we missed verse 21. But in reality, looking back at the oldest, most reliable manuscripts, it was never there. But you can tell why or I'll I'll mention why it makes sense later, Um, maybe if I have time for it or if I remember it. So let's go ahead and read verses 14 to 20. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. This is the word of the Lord. Now, all right. So let's walk through the text and kind of hit on a couple reminders. This was one of those sermons where I found so many great quotes that I decided to incorporate none of them because then I'd be preaching someone else's sermon. Actually, Spurgeon, if you really want to read a wonderful sermon on this text, look up Spurgeon's sermon on this text. Um, He uh, he comes at it from a really, really fun, gut punching angle. Uh, But the uh, so let's let's walk through. So the first part is the father's plea. Now, before we go into into the text itself, I want to point out that Matthew's account is actually significantly shorter than Mark's. Mark uh, has fourteen verses dedicated to it, um, and Luke's is also short as well. But Mark is in Mark nine fourteen to twenty eight, and Luke's is in Luke nine thirty seven to forty two. Uh, all three accounts of this event f- come right after the Mount of Transfiguration. So it's like they go from this, this, uh, the, the, the three that went up there, the the disciples saw this wonderful vision of Jesus transfigured. And then they go down and they find that the rest of the disciples are having trouble casting out a demon, which Jesus gave them the authority to do back in chapter 10 verses one and eight of chapter 10, but each gospel has not a different perspective, but a different thrust on what's happening in the story. Mark records, uh, the primary focus on the father and his unbelief. He's got that famous cry of, 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 uh, if, you know, if you're able to cast it out and Jesus says, if I'm able, and then he goes, Lord, I believe help my unbelief. So Mark really focuses predominantly on the father Luke focuses more on the amazement of the crowd. His final verse in 42 says that they were astonished or amazed or fearful or reverent, depending on your translation of the word, at what Jesus did in casting out the demon. Because again, the disciples weren't able. So Matthew, however, focuses on the disciples. He focuses on the problem that the apostles had, and the reason that they were not able to cast it out. So, but I, I don't want to move past the desperate plea of the father. I, I want us to notice what this shows. Because uh, the, the father's desperate to make his son whole. Let's go ahead and, and and remind ourselves what's happening here. This is not just epilepsy, right? This is not just a physical ailment, but this poor kid seems to frequently uh, seize up or 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 straighten up and then be cast by this demonic influence into fire and into water. Perhaps he's disfigured from the amount of times that he's touched the flame. Perhaps he's got nicks and cuts and bruises and broken bones from being cast into rivers or shallow water. But this child has something wrong. I mean, by all, uh, by all accounts, if we were to look at this kid, we would probably think, man, he's suicidal. But the father knows something's up, that this is not his kid, that something is wrong. And so he goes to Jesus desperate, desperate to make his child whole and a loving father will stop at nothing until his kid is taken care of to the best of his ability. Nowadays, we call that advocating for your kid, right? You, you take him to the doctor and the doctor goes, well, they're just fine. And you're like, nah, man, he's jumping into fire. There's something wrong. A good father looks at his children and wants to, wants to give everything of himself in order to make sure that they're loved and cared for. Bad fathers are those who in their annoyance and frustration, maybe give up on their kids and decide that the obstacles of parenting are just not worth enduring. And I say that hoping that that's nobody in this room, but I have... I have a special place in the back of my mind for dads that give up on their kids and just say, yeah, you know what? You're just not worth it. So this kid in this story is suffering from something awful. The, uh, the, the King James, I think it is, says that he has lunacy or he's a lunatic. Um, the, the, the. The problem is that that's not an accurate, I mean, it's an accurate translation to the Greek. The Greek means that he has like a lunar problem um, because that was the way they described people that were out of their mind, as they they seemed to have an issue with the moon. That was just the way that they thought about it. So when you read the word "lunatic," it means quite literally "moon problem." <laughs> um, but that's not exactly what we have in this case. In this case, we have someone who seizes, as Mark nine describes. And he, he, he gets cast into the fire and cast into the water. Um, So this, this, this is not simple epilepsy, like I said, and, and the father cares for his son and he, he wants, he wants his son to be spared. And, and knowing that the son is probably disfigured from all these burns, maybe the father is too. Maybe, maybe it's a, it's a fire in their home that he keeps pulling his child out of and he's reaching in and grabbing and maybe it's burning his hands too, his arms, or maybe the child is fighting and has cast the father into the fire before. But, but it's doubtless that this child and this guy are just weary from the struggles. They go to Jesus, Jesus's disciples for help. And they are unable to help. So then Jesus responds. He grows actually frustrated. Uh, verse 17. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? So Jesus grows Exasperated which is probably one of the best words in, in, in the English language because it just like you can't say it without feeling exasperated. Uh, but Jesus grows exasperated here. And um, it's often noted in, in commentary after commentary after commentary that this is Jesus's humanity showing through. Jesus is is frustrated with the people around him, with the faithless around him. And uh, I, I agree with that. I, I think that Jesus is weary from the fact that, that, that there's an era that he's in that, that's still struggling. Even though he's there among them, Uh, the great Princeton theologian, B.B. Warfield. And if you've never heard of B.B. Warfield, he was the last conservative theologian in Princeton. Like we're talking early 1900s. He he got he got appointed to the head of the theology department. And the dude was a bulwark of theological uh, conservative uh, or conservative theological education. I mean, the dude is amazing. And if you've not read B.B. Warfield, you're missing out. And I think his name is Benjamin Breckenridge, which is just difficult to say, but there's several BBs in church history. Anyway, he wrote an essay called the emotional life of our Lord. Um, in it, he, he wrote that Jesus experienced, and I quote, all sinless human emotions. But pause, exasperation in our, in our case almost always causes us to sin. Remember the bad fathers I mentioned before, the ones that go, you know what? I'm finished, I'm done. The trials of, of raising kids, of which there are many, um, are just not worth it, and they give up. In their frustration and exasperation, they vanish. But here, Jesus shows us Proper exager- or exasperation, proper frustration. While for us, exasperation might often uh, be a great passion that leads us astray, Jesus' exasperation in this case moved him to pity. And his exasperation lumps both his disciples and their faithlessness. And the crowds with their twistedness together. So it's important to note here that Jesus seems to grow weary with the faithlessness of his own people, even those closest to him. How often he must look at our, frust- or our faithlessness with, with sinless frustration Because I know, I know for me personally, there are times when I am absolutely faithless, where I go through the motions and just kind of expect God to do what he does. And I'm assuming that if I'm in that camp, that incorporates everyone else as well. We Christians are faithless. Faithless. Often, are we not? We decide to take matters in our own hands that are matters that only God is able to deal with. And I'll get to that a little bit more. But, but this goes back to our obsession with grit and determination instead of faith and prayer. Because we often think of faith as a passive action. And prayer is maybe a surrender of our, of our inability, which is a good thing. But we don't think of it as the right thing very often. And it's also important to note that even though Jesus, in this case, is exasperated and frustrated, he doesn't just give up. And that's actually really good news, folks. Jesus, though exasperated and frustrated by your own faithlessness, does not give up on you. Have you ever thought about how... Frustrating you must be to God. <laughs> Have you ever thought about how frustrating you are to yourself? Because God sees even more well-orbed how, how frustrating you should be. And yet he doesn't give up on you. He may chastise and discipline us, but his frustration will never cause him to quit his mission of redeeming grace. And that's really what Jesus' mission is. It's on redemptive and redeeming grace. The Apostle John in 1 John 4.16 wrote those those now infamous words, God is love. And it's only infamous because people twist it. But, But because Jesus is God, we can rightly say that Jesus then is love incarnated. So therefore, when we read things like Paul's uh, uh, famous love discourse in first Corinthians 13, we can read this sentence knowing that it describes Jesus perfectly. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's not about marriage. That's about Jesus. He bears all things with you. He believes all things with you. He hopes all things with you. And he endures all things. That last one is my biggest hope. He endures a lot with me. And I know that. So Jesus endures even his own frustration here. And, and in, in absolute perfect power, he casts the demon out of this child. And as a final reminder to the, these verses, I want you to remember that we're still in the same generation that Jesus is complaining about. When we think of generation, we think maybe hundred years, right? We think, uh, we think of the, um, Uh, You know, like, well, the time when Jesus walked, right, that epic of time, which is about 30, 35 years, right? We think, okay, there's that generation. But the reality is that we're still in that same sinful, fallen, messed up uh, generation that Jesus is complaining about. We are still in that faithless and twisted time before Jesus's return, where he inaugurates his restored kingdom in the new heavens and new earth. So, um, don't, don't fall into the group that looks back and says, well, that generation was really screwed up, but this generation is much better or even 30 years ago, right? 30 years ago, you shouldn't have been so prideful as to look back at this generation of Jesus walking on earth and go, man, they were really screwed up. I'm so glad it's so much better now. So Jesus Jesus then rebukes the demon in verse eighteen. Uh, Matthew's account leaves out that the demon began convulsing the boy when he approached Jesus. If we were to read Mark nine twenty, uh, we would read And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. So that's what happens. That's what everyone is seeing. We don't know if if the boy did that with the disciples, but we know that when he approached Jesus, that's what he did. The demon decided that that he was going to to make him freak out, convulse, fall on the ground, roll about, and foam at the mouth. But what Matthew does emphasize for us is that the demon leaves at Jesus' word though it did not leave at the disciples' word." Now, um, that's really the primary tension, right? That's the crux in Matthew's retelling. Um, So what exactly was the disciples' issue? Why could they not cast it out? Well, it's because they had little faith. the, the word here, now Jesus has actually referred to his apostles, oh, you of little faith, right? But the sentence in that is, is essentially, oh, you little faithers, right? He said that before, but that's not the same word here. The word here seems to imply an ineffectual faith, not small as in size, but small as in strength. Like, I mean, if you look at me, you might think I could bench press a cow, right? I'm pretty big. If somebody just looks at my weight uh, uh, on a sheet, they just, they might go, wow, that guy's probably pretty strong under six foot and that heavy. Uh, (laughs) But then when they see me, they realize that I actually have little strength for my size. That's kind of what Jesus means here. He means little in terms of strength or force. Or effect, not in terms of size. So something went wrong with the disciples, right? If we were to read verses 19 to 20, uh, we would read that the disciples come to Jesus privately and they say, why could we not cast it out? And then Jesus replies to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, and he goes on. Matthew doesn't tell us what happened. Matthew doesn't define for us little faith. And I think he doesn't do it because, it, because Jesus didn't. Jesus wants that open. What does little faith look like? Well, maybe it looks like the nine disciples being upset that they were left behind and they're jealous of Peter, James and John. Maybe they were indignant sitting down there grumbling to themselves and 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 frustrated. Well, why did they get to do it? And we have to stay down here. And then maybe the crowd comes up to them and they're like, oh, come on. I don't want this. Or or maybe maybe they weren't actually upset that they got to go, but maybe they wanted a break and they just wanted to be left alone. And and here comes the crowd. Or maybe they were they had grown self-confident and they were like, yeah, here comes the crowd. Us nine can take care of it. We don't need those guys, do we? No, we can do this on our own. Matthew doesn't tell us what. The problem was, we just know that they were not acting in true effectual faith. We know that they were hindered because of their lack of effectual faith. Now, I want to put in a a side note here that true faith necessitates action. And we know that they did something. I mean, they, they obviously tried to cast out the demon Henry Blackaby wrote to follow God, you will have to walk by faith and faith always requires action. So we know they did something, just not the right thing. So now I want to I want to input a little bit of uh, more fun, too, because when Jesus says for truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed. He's actually, again, not describing size. The 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 what he uses here is what's known as an adverbial comparative, which which means he's he's not saying you need the faith of a mustard seed. But he's also not saying you need faith the size of a mustard seed. He's saying quite literally faith like a mustard seed. Now, if you know uh, English grammar rules, you know that a simile uses like or as, right? Trying to compare in a similar fashion, right? If, if I were to say that uh, my dog is like a horse, right? I'm trying to compare it, right? Um, actually, she bounds like a rabbit, so I can't really say that accurately. But, but, but if I were to say it, you know, she, she's fast like a horse, right? You know that that comparison is, uh, is, is, is making like a mental picture. So Jesus is trying to make a mental picture. It's faith like a mustard seed. And what he means by that is they need an active faith, not a passive faith. True faith is always faith in forward motion. Faith needs action. It needs to do things. It needs to grow. It doesn't drift. It doesn't coast. If you drop a mustard seed in a river, it just floats downriver, but it's never going to sprout. If you plant a mustard seed in the soil, then it's going to absorb the nutrients. It's going to branch itself out. It's going to make sure that it's actually having outward motion. And a mustard seed may be small but it's trying to absorb those nutrients. It has to break its husk. It's set its roots and grow into a tree. So when Jesus says, if you have faith, like a mustard seed, he's saying that you're not going to expect others to do things for you. You're not going to expect other people to feed you. You're going to be making every effort you can to nourish yourself with the good soil of solid doctrine. You're going to be making efforts to advance the kingdom of God, to grow outward instead of expecting the kingdom to grow, to serve you. That's what Jesus means when he says you need faith like a mustard seed. He wants you to have an active faith. He's telling the disciples they need to have an active faith. Now, again, how exactly did that look here? I don't know. I I really don't. I wish, I wish Jesus would have added some more clarity, but he doesn't. He leaves it open. He leaves it open for you, the reader, me, the reader to go. Yeah, I do. I do need a faith. I do need faith like a mustard seed. Now for Jesus's final statement, he switches from a, from a simile to a metaphor he says, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, pause. Um, biblical commentator. Well, all right. Going back when we were in Matthew 10, I, I stressed the point that when Jesus gave his authority to the apostles, it did not mean that the apostles were operating under their own authority. It meant that they were using his authority in order to accomplish these things. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, so forth, so on in Matthew ten eight, The same thing is true here. The the authority that's that's given is not literally you can say to that tree, I don't like you there. I wish you were six feet to the left and it'll just kind of move its way over if you somehow have this capacity of faith. Um, Biblical commentator Stuart Weber wrote this, he said, biblical faith assumes not only a belief in God's power, but also a heart after God's own heart which desires and asks for the things of God, not personal wants. This is an important caution in light of the erroneous name it and claim it theology we hear so often today. Operating under God's authority means doing what God wants. Doing things that God wants means that you will be able to overcome any obstacle in your way because you're doing what God wants, not what you want. And Jesus here is not giving his disciples the authority to move literal mountains. Now, why do I think that? Because there's nobody in the history of Christianity of 2000 and you know, some odd years who has ever literally moved a mountain. No one, no one ever, 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 ever. And anyone that says they have done it is an utter liar. So Jesus is trying to make a metaphor for, for obstacles being moved out of the way because of the little faith of the disciples. They weren't able to heal the boy going back to what actually happened here. They were not able to cast out the demon, even though they, Jesus had given them His authority to do so. But if they had had the effectual faith, if they had relied on God in prayer, as it's noted in Mark nine twenty nine. By the way, if you were to turn to Mark nine twenty nine, Jesus says, "This kind can only come out by prayer." Then they would have overcome the obstacle of adva- that was standing in their way of advancing the kingdom and removing the demon. And Jesus, Jesus is literally saying nothing's going to be impossible for those who have faith. So Jesus is not talking about things you want. He's not talking about literal mountains. He's not talking about you speaking money into your bank account. Oh, gosh. Every time I think that, by the way, I hear Kenneth Copeland's Voice in the back of my head saying that you need to confess the billion dollar flow and that is such absolute utter ridiculous heresy that it just makes me sick. And the dude looks like he's possessed. I mean, if you, anyway, watch, watch the interview. Just go on YouTube, search Kenneth Copeland's demons in a plane and just listen to the interview where he says that he doesn't, he rides a personal jet that he's confessed into existence because, because he doesn't want to ride with a bunch of demons in the plane. And he's saying that about other passengers. Like, anyway, bleh. all right. So Jesus is not talking about the mountain of money that you're confessing into your bank account. He's not he's not saying that you can force God if you create this currency of faith uh, to fix your house or get you a job or or or, you know, sow the seed of faith by sending in your, you know, fifty dollars a month and supporting some heretic on TV. He's not saying that. Jesus is talking about doing works for his glory, removing obstacles in the way of advancing his kingdom, serving him, bringing him the glory. Now, whatever happened with the disciples here was very clearly not focused on Jesus. Now, why do I say that? Because it didn't work. (laughs) <laughs> Jesus had given them the authority to cast out demons and for whatever happens. Gosh, in my mind, I just think of the disciples standing there sipping coffee and the crowd comes up and and, uh, you know, one of them somebody comes, you know, the father comes up and says, "My my son has a demon. And one of them crunches the coffee cup and, you know, takes the last sip, crunches the coffee cup, cracks his knuckles and goes, all right, I got this guy's. I don't know if that's what happened, but man, I can just feel <laughs> like, like if I were in the same situation, that would be me. Be like, yep, oh, let me limber up these limbs. All right, demon. <laughs> so I, I'm assuming that something went wrong here. That something in terms of, of pride went wrong. Faith is never a currency. The natural posture of faith is one of inability. If you are hanging on the side of a cliff and you're screaming for help and someone comes up and they say, let go of the root, you know, let go of the root you're holding on with your other hand. Let go of it so I can pull you up. True faith in that instance lets go of the root and lets the person pull you up. Having full confidence and assurance that they are more able to help you than you are able to help yourself. Faith is never about me manufacturing some sort of, of, of pretend trust. When somebody tells you to just have faith, they're telling you to get out of yourself and look in someone else. Faith is never about your ability. So when Jesus says they couldn't cast out the demon because of their little faith, they didn't trust God. I don't know what they trusted, but they didn't trust God. Now, for some personal applications from this text, I'm going to work backwards a little bit. Um, I have, I have two, um, number one, and I'm going to paraphrase Mark Clifton. Mark Clifton is the senior director of replanting of Nam. Um, he, he has this thing that he says, he has this Mondays with Mark. If you watch it on Facebook where he, he says the same sentence over and over again, trying to beat it into people's heads. He says, God is not obligated to fund your plans for, for his church, but he, he will fund his plans for your church. And so I'm going to paraphrase that. Um, Actually, I'm stealing it from one of the commentaries, but I'm paraphrasing it because I know Mark's statement a little bit more. But uh, God is not obligated to accomplish your plans, but he will accomplish his plans. For those who trust in the Lord, there is no obstacle that's going to stand in the way of 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 uh, of accomplishing his plans. Nothing, not mountains, not resources, not lack of people. God will do as he sees fit in order to do exactly what he intends to fit. So where are you faithless in your life? Where are you having little faith where you ought to have much faith? Where are you relying on your own strength and ability when, when, when instead you should be relying on God? God. Where are you being prayerless where you ought to be prayerful? God will accomplish his plans, not your plans. So lay aside your burdens of sin and pride and set your heart on what he intends to accomplish. And that takes a lot of humility. It really does. Uh, at the great, uh, at the end of the great hall of faith of Hebrews 11, The author of Hebrews writes two verses, and it's the introduction to chapter 12. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If we truly believe that Christ will accomplish his plans, we won't be hindered by any obstacle, whether suffering or shame, but we'll watch those obstacles move out of the way in order to glorify God. Now, like I said, verse 21, is a scribal addition. It's overwhelmingly true. I, I mean, anybody with even a mild background in historical documents can't find any, uh, any, um, existence of, um, Of uh, verse 21 until about the same time as the Latin Vulgate, which would be about 1200. So a thousand years, let's say, after Jesus is when verse 21 exists. So even though it's overwhelmingly true that verse 21 doesn't exist, I can see why a scribe added verse 21. Because because you you read in it so very clearly This, this statement, that the, this kind will never come out except by prayer and fasting. What's the natural posture of prayer, submission, inability, relying on the one who's able. What's the, what's the result of fasting, remembering how unable you are and how much you need sustenance from something else in order to survive. It is not up to us to accomplish God's plans through grit and determination. You don't do it of your own will. It's up to us to be faithful. Serving our king and his plans. Now, the second application I've already said, but I'm going to go through it quickly. Though God grows frustrated by your faithlessness He does not abandon you. Like in this story, Jesus pities us just like he pitied the boy. He looks on us with compassion, just like he looked on this boy with compassion. Even though you are guaranteedly receiving chastisement from the Lord, or you're frustrated with your own ineffectual faith, Or you're growing stagnant or you feel hindered. Jesus doesn't abandon you. That's good news. Really good news. John MacArthur once said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. And it's so true. If I could, if I could fall out of my salvation or frustrate Jesus enough that he goes, and you're done. I would have done it probably day one of being a Christian and every day since then. Jesus does not cast you out because of your inability, but instead your inability is what has him draw close to you to have him chastise you. Imagine how the apostles felt when Jesus says, you, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to put up with you? These were Jesus's best buds. I bet their hearts sank. So often the most faithful Christians I know question their own salvation. And it's funny because it's only the faithful Christians that question whether or not they're saved. It's never the people that I look at and I go, dude, you need Jesus. It's always the people that I I look at and go, dude, you have Jesus. Only the disciples of Jesus have the wherewithal to turn to Jesus in private, like the apostles here, and ask, why could we not do it? why was i not able what went wrong well i can guarantee the problem is that very question why was i not able why could we not do it so here we are in our church and for years this church has been hampered by hampered from growth for years problems have arisen for years the roof leaks For years, electrical circuits die for years, uh, heaters catch fire and you know, we know why, but (laughs) for years problems happen and only the faithful turn to God and say, why have we not grown? Why have we been hindered? Why are these problems happening? Only the faithful are the ones that receive the rebuke from God because of your little faith. So I want us to take that. I want us to think on that. And even me, I've been here a year and a half. I'm not just blaming everyone else. The the reason that we are hindered is because of us. The reason that you are hindered from growing in the Lord is because of you. The reason I'm hindered from growing in the Lord is because of me. Because of my little faith. Because of your little faith. So let's not pretend like it's our grit and determination or somehow us grabbing our own bootstraps. Have you ever thought about that phrase, somebody picking themselves up by their bootstraps? That just makes them fall over. If somebody really tries to bend over and pick themselves up with their bootstraps, they're just going to fall backwards on their bums. Abby, I said bum. Sorry. Uh, (laughs) Sorry. It's not by our own grit and determination that we're going to see growth. It's going to be by the Lord and his, his goodness of advancing his own kingdom. In every failure in the story of God's people, God's people should look back, ask privately of the Lord, why did we not succeed? We are not perfect. So therefore we need to rely on a perfect savior in order to see success in anything. And he does not abandon us. Let's pray. Lord, even though you, you got frustrated with the disciples, you got frustrated with the people, with the crowds around, you got frustrated, even with the guy, when he, when he said of you, you know, um, uh, that if you're able to cast it out, Lord, even though you're frustrated, you still pitied them and you still acted and you rebuked your disciples. So, therefore, Lord, let us hear that rebuke in our own hearts and our own minds and our own souls and remember that in every circumstance, faith necessitates action. And faith necessitates humility, self-examination, rooting the sin out of ourselves that we can see. So God, let us see our sin. Let us see our sins of little faith and respond in repentance. In Jesus' name, amen. Regardless of your own faithlessness, Turn to the one who's full of faithfulness this week. Go in peace, saints.